Section 4 of Mimic Life by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Kelly Taylor. Stella, Chapter 4. It was the morning of Stella's debut. As she drew back the curtains of her window, the sight of her own name in huge letters on a placard opposite sent an electric shock through her frame. The novel sensation could hardly be designated as pain, yet it would be mistermed as pleasure. There was too much incertitude, too much thrilling expectancy, too many turbulent thoughts contending in her mind for the sense of enjoyment to predominate. She had broken the thrall of tyrannous custom she had triumphed over all opposition, and yet the canker warm of discontent entered her breast and blasted the spring blossoms of her youth. The unrelaxed tension of her nerves, her mental unrest, had quenched the sparkle of her effervescing spirits. Her state constantly alternated between high excitement and oppressive weariness. As soon as her determination to become an actress was rooted in the public ear, she was, of course, besieged by the remonstrances of her friends, but their opinions she set at naught. Her independent tone and resolute manner silenced exhortation. To her mother's presence, no one gained admission. Mr. Oakland declined to accompany his pupil to her second rehearsal. His tenderness towards the unprotected girl had induced him to violate a principle at her strong entreaty, but he saw no cause to subject himself to further slight without being of essential service to her. The clock had struck its tenth warning on that eventful day, and the ten minutes theatrical grace had expired before Stella, with Mattie at her side, once more entered the theater. They found the company already assembled, but rehearsal had not commenced. Everybody awaited the appearance of the great tragedian. Punctuality would have been derogatory to the dignity of Mr. Tennant. To cause his co-laborers as much annoyance as possible was to impress them with a due sense of his own importance. Mr. Belton saluted Stella more cordially than on the previous occasion. He was gratified to find that Mr. Oakland's presence was not considered indispensable. Fisk bestowed on her a familiar nod. The stage managers and actors curtailed their civilities to the utmost brevity. The profession never pay homage in anticipation. Miss Rosenvelt's assumed position in the theater as yet lacked the stamp of a public recognition. All novices are looked upon as pretenders until success proclaims their legitimacy. Mr. Belton chanced to be called away. Stella was left standing in the center of the stage beside Mattie, looking wretchedly uncomfortable and out of place. Mrs. Fairfax, who had just entered, joined her at once and ordered Fix to bring her a chair. You will learn the ways of the theater Little by little, my dear, everybody feels strange at first. She placed the chair beside the manager's table. 
You can sit here in the green room, just as you please. It is the privilege of the stars to take their seat on the stage and watch the rehearsal. The rest of the company are not allowed this liberty. How flushed you look! Will you not be more comfortable if you lay aside your bonnet? You will rehearse better. Stella willingly removed her hat, for even its light weight seemed to press painfully on her throbbing brain. Mrs. Fairfax hinted that Mattie had better keep a little more in the background. She might subject herself to a reproof from an austere stage manager. Mattie, at a word, retreated behind the scenes. But her honest, anxious face was constantly visible, peeping round one of the wings and watching Stella. After a half an hour's delay, Mr. Tennant made a pompous entrance. The stage echoed with his heavy tread, his deep, sonorous voice as he issued some despotic orders, his imperious bearing, his athletic frame, cast in one of nature's rudest molds, inspired Stella with a feeling akin to awe. Mr. Belton presented him. Sorry you've got me a novice. Detest acting with amateurs, was his audible observation as he eyed the young girl with supercilious scrutiny. Poor Lydia, we shan't soon see her match again. He turned on his heel without addressing a single syllable to the discomfited novice. And so he is to act Virginia's, thought Stella herself. How will I ever imagine myself his daughter? If he had only spoken one word to me, it would have made such a difference. Rehearsal commenced. To Stella's great surprise, Mr. Tennant rattled over the language of his role in the same senseless manner as the other actors, pausing now and then to explain his particular business and ejaculating brute in an undertone every time some unfortunate individual failed to comprehend him. Stella summoned all her energy and successfully assumed a bearing which might have been mistaken for composure. She went through her allotted duties without hesitation and apparently undismayed. Mrs. Fairfax congratulated her on her newly acquired self-possession. Mr. Tennant occasionally instructed her in business, but without unbending from his stately demeanor. As Virginia is seen no more after the fourth act, Stella was at liberty to absent herself before rehearsal concluded. She returned to the chair upon which she had placed her bonnet. Mr. Finch was unconsciously sitting upon both. He laughed unconcernedly and made a clumsy attempt to pull the hat into shape, but uttered no apology. Then, thrusting it into her extended hand, he said, No use crying over spilt milk. You don't put your foot in it tonight and make a failure. You can't afford to buy yourself twice as fine a kickshaw as this. Stella's mind was too engrossed to dwell upon trifles, but she recalled from contact with coarse natures. It was less mortification to be forced to wear the damaged hat through the streets than to be treated with such rude indifference. She was passing out behind the scenes when Mrs. Fairfax once more joined her. Call upon me for any assistance you may need this evening. 
You will, of course, have the star dressing room. The luxury of an apartment to oneself is reserved for stars only. The room in which I dress, with four other ladies, adjoins yours. You had better come early, at least an hour and a half before the curtain rises, so that you can walk about after you are dressed and collect your thoughts. Do not forget that I will assist you, you with pleasure. Mrs. Fairfax's partiality for her profession, as well as her native kindness of heart, interested her in a novice who apparently possessed histrionic qualifications of a rare order. The compassionate actress stretched out a loving hand to this young girl whose uncertain feet were forcing their way within a briary circle which bounded that miniature world, a theater. Stella was thanking her new friend with much warmth when the ballet girl timidly approached. Her face was grief-warm and sickly, but of touching loveliness. Oppression looked out from her meek eyes. Her coarse and insufficient garb betokened penury. Her attenuated fingers were rapidly knitting lace, and her needles never ceased their motion as she spoke. May Floyd carry your basket, miss? My basket? The basket with your dresses. Floyd carries all the baskets. Stella looked inquiringly at Miss Fairfax. You should have a basket for your costumes. A basket is lighter and more convenient than a trunk. This is Floyd's sister. He takes charge of all our baskets. Poor fellow, we ought to help him as much as we can, she added in an undertone. The unfortunate boy is half-witted, but very honest. Mattie shall purchase me a basket. Let your brother call for it, by all means, said Stella. And tell him to be sure to call early, Perdita, added Miss Fairfax. Oh, never fear. Thank you kindly, Miss Rosenfeld. Still knitting as she walked away, Perdita returned to the green room. That poor girl's history is a sad one, said Mrs. Fairfax. But alas, there is abundance of sad histories in all theaters. Her father is now the captain of the supernumeraries. I suppose you hardly know what that means. The captain is a sort of leader who directs and drills the soups. His grade in the theater, as you might imagine, is rather low. Yet I remember him, a handsome, ambitious, promising actor. But he is unfortunate, or rather he imagined himself unlucky, and was possessed with the idea that all the world conspired against him. He said he was always kept down in every theater where he was engaged, that managers never afforded him an opportunity of exhibiting the talents he was confident of possessing. A man of violent passions, he was constantly falling into disgrace by his disputes with his fellow actors. He was discharged from theater after theater. He became dispirited, morose, and finally abandoned himself to the control of demon intemperance. Intoxication was nightly prologued to his sleep. His wife was second walking lady in this theater, a gentle, inoffensive being, most unfitly mated. She died a few years ago, leaving two children, Perdita and Florizel. So the mother called them after her favorite characters in Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. One day, the father, in a paroxysm of ungovernable rage, locked up little Floy in a dark cellar. The child was left shrieking with terror, 
while the father lost all remembrance at a neighboring tavern, he returned at midnight and found poor Pedita sitting outside the cellar door, moaning and weeping and calling to her brother, whom she believed to be dead. The father, suddenly sobered by this alarm, drew the key from his pocket and opened the door. The boy was discovered, sitting on the ground, staring wildly at one corner, his teeth chattering as he pointed with his fingers and used frantic gesticulations. Prolonged fear had unsettled his mind. Ever since, he has been what people call half-witted. Perdita, although she is only four years older, has tended him with all a mother's devotion. Over her father, too, she exerts a more powerful influence than anyone else. She belongs to Fort de Ballet here, but the poor child works day and night with her needle to support her family. The boy has just sense enough to be taught to carry baskets to and fro. At first, Perdita always accompanied him when he received the baskets and delivered them. Not a few weary journeys did the brave girl take daily. By and by, she earned by her knitting, sewing, and flower-making sufficient money to buy Floy a wheelbarrow. She has now so thoroughly taught him the way to all the resonances of the actors that he goes for the baskets every night by himself and takes them home again after the play. He never makes a mistake. And is the father still intemperate? asks Ella. Hopelessly so, I fear. That evil spirit, Perdita, angel as she is, cannot exercise. He is tortured by remorse and drinks to drown all recollection of the injury he has inflicted on his child. You will see him tonight. Perdita is always watching over and helping him. But for her, he would never be ready to go upon the stage at the right moment. He could not be depended upon and would have been dismissed long ago. But what a time I have spent gossiping over this romance of real life. I must say goodbye until tonight. Keep up a brave heart and success to you. Goodbye. I feel a little more like success than I did on Saturday. How much heavier are that poor girl's trials than mine, mused Stella, as she walked slowly home. What could have revealed to me the blessedness of my own lot so forcibly as the contrast with this great sufferer? The afternoon was one of long expectancy to Stella. The thoughtful Mattie had persuaded her to lie down, but she tossed uneasily on her pillow, finding no repose. Every few minutes she turned to the clock. There was surely some clog upon its hands. They moved so slowly. Oh, that the night had come and passed. Then, as the long foretime drew near, suddenly she grew sick at heart and was seized with faintness. The thought flashed through her mind that she would fail at the last moment, that she lacked strength to carry the burden which she had lifted upon her own shoulders with such headstrong will. Half past seven was the hour at which the curtain must rise. She had been apprised that Mr. Belton enforced the strictest punctuality at night. Even when stars of first magnitude solicited a few moments delayed, it was denied. Miss Fairfax had cautioned her to be at the theater in ample time. It wanted but a quarter of six. A knock at the door. The pale-faced Perdita stood without. She was accompanied by a tall, ungainly stripling. The extreme sharpness of his countenance reminded Stella of the profile show she had seen that morning scattered about the stage. 
His large, projecting eyes of faintest blue seemed starting from their sockets. His nether limbs bore a strong resemblance to a pair of compasses, and his long, lank arms reached below his knees. His mouth remained open with an expression of silly wonder. When he caught Stella's eye, he shook his head, agitating a profusion of straight, toe-colored locks, and chuckled and laughed, as child does with child when they are bent upon some forbidden frolic. "'I have brought my brother,' said Perdita, advancing into the room. "'He has come for the basket. I show him the way the first time he goes to a strange place. He always remembers it after that.' The serene, sweet face of the humble girl, who had passed calmly through such soul-harrowing trials, who faithfully performed so many difficult duties, had more effect in composing Stella's excited nerves than all the heart-shorn and sal-volative which Mattie had solicitously administered. The basket was already packed. Mattie strapped the cover with leathern girths, and Floyd delightedly received his new burden. Stella's adieu to her mother was very brief. She only trusted herself to say, I hope I shall bring you good news, mother, and the promise of laurels hereafter, even if I win none tonight. She was equally surprised and gratified when her mother asked for a copy of Virginius to peruse in her daughter's absence. Mattie, who was now and then a little tyrannical, had persisted in ordering a carriage, though Stella declared herself quite able to walk. Soon after six, they were driving to the theater. They presented themselves at the stage door just as Perdita and Floy arrived with the basket. The doorkeeper brusquely questioned Stella as to her identity before he admitted them. The dreary gloominess of the theater behind the scenes when twilight is chasing the outspent day must be seen and felt to be fully comprehended. The desolate cheerlessness of the place has struck a chill in the heart of many a novice. The crowded scenery looks rougher and dingier. The painted tenements, groves, gardens, streets, more grotesque. The numberless stage anomalies more glaringly absurd. The seaweed floating on the waves in feathery sprays of brilliant red and vivid green that, seized for closer scanning, turns out to be an unsightly, shapeless mass fitly typifies the stage in its resplendent wizard robe of night enchantment, unideal, lugubrious daytime garb. Where am I to go? Stella inquired of Perdita. The dresser, Miss Bunce, has not come yet, and the gas will not be turned on until half past six. Mr. Belton only allows it to be lighted for one hour before the curtain rises, but, if you please, I can show you the star dressing room. Perdita led the way up a long flight of stairs, then through a narrow entryway, or rather gallery. On one side appear a row of small doors, very like those of a bathing machine. They opened into the rooms of the ladies of the company. A wooden railing extended on the other side. To anyone who leaned over this rude balcony, the larger portion of the stage became visible. Five or six persons were often crowded into one dressing room. The apartments were portioned off into set spaces, and every cramped division labeled with a name. The room at the end of the gallery was appropriated solely to the lady star. 
The dressing rooms devoted to the use of gentlemen were located beneath the stage. Predita opened the door of this modern star chamber. The apartment was very small and the atmosphere suffocatingly close. Maddie at once threw up the tiny cobweb-draped windows. A shelf ran along one side of the wall after the manner of a kitchen dresser. In front lay a narrow strip of baize. The rest of the floor was bare. On the center of the shelf stood a cracked mirror. A gas branch jutted out on either side. Two very rickety chairs, a crazy washstand, a diminutive stove constituted the furniture of the apartment. In this unseemly chrysalis shell, the butterflies of the stage received their wings. Little did the audience, who greeted some queen-like favorite, sumptuously attired in broidered velvet and glittering with jewels, imagine such was the palace bower from which she issued. The year had just ushered in its most wayward child, smiling, frowning April. Frowns thus far predominated. The unsunned air had all the searching bleakness of March. Maddie threw her own shawl over her shivering charge and examined the unlighted stove. Set down the basket, Floy, and run for a match, said Perdita. The boy, as he removed the basket from his shoulders, looked at Stella with evident admiration, winked at her, chuckled again, and ran down the stair. He was strongly attracted by this new face. He comprehended that something was going on, which principally concerned its possessor, but what it was he could not have defined. Floyd returned with the match, and Mattie was lighting the fire which she found prepared for kindling when Perdita whispered, Here comes Mrs. Bunce, and hurried away with her brother, apparently awed by the approach of some august personage. Mrs. Bunce, a portly middle-aged woman, now bustled in. What a voice that Mrs. Bunce had! It was so shrill that when she spoke, Stella almost fancied her ears were suddenly pierced by a sharp instrument. All Mrs. Bunce's words were darted out with amazing rapidity. Here in time, eh? That's a good sign for a novice. This is the young lady, I suppose. Examining Stella. Quite a stage face. How do you do, my dear? This is your maid, I suppose? Her maid, her nurse, or her costumer, or anything she is pleased to want, replied Maddie with dignity. Ah, that's well. No doubt a very serviceable person. So you set the fire going. That's a pity. You may be smoked out soon. All the stoves here smoke when the wind's contrary. Out with the dresses. Hang them up on those nails. Her toilet things go here. Never been on the stage before, miss. It's a trying thing for beginners. I've seen hundreds of debuts in my days. Most of the young ones think a great deal of themselves until they get before the lights. Then they find out what they're made of. Not one in fifty succeeds. Hope you're not scared. Don't show it to the audience or they'll think it's good fun. They always laugh at the fright of the novices. You know, it makes the poor simple things look so ridiculously awkward. Here, Jerry, calling out over the gallery to the gas lighter. If you can't light up the gas yet, give us a candle, will you? The young person is a novice and I may have some trouble dressing her. 
thank you, Mrs. Bunce, Stella ventured to say, but Manny has been accustomed to dress me. Yes, that I have, ever since she was that high, added Manny affectionately, and designating with a hand a statue of some few inches. Ah, I dare say, but not for the stage. Mr. Belton depends on me to look after the novices on their first night and to see that they don't disfigure themselves. Mattie, when her legitimate office was thus peremptorily snatched from her hands, looked like a suppressed thunder gust. But, considerate, even in her wrath, she feared to distress Stella by remonstrating. Not without difficulty, she controlled a strong temptation to forcibly eject Mrs. Bunce from the apartment. As Mattie opened the basket, Mrs. Bunce seized upon the contents and dragged them to light without ceremony. White Merino, that's right. Has it got a sweep? Not too long, I hope. If she's awkward, she'll trip. Those folds are too small for a Roman dress. She has such a wisp of a figure, she should wear loose folds, which are more correct. Where's your key border? Key border? asked Stella. Yes, round the bottom of the dress. It's Roman. We always dress our Virginias with a key border trimming. I like the dress better without. Virginia's character is marked by such girlish simplicity that her attire should go unadorned. Oh, very well. It's no great matter. You are not expected to know much about it as yet. Mrs. Bunce chattered on without pause while Stella commenced her toilette. The busy fingers of the dresser made several desperate attempts to assist in the arrangement of the novice's hair, but this Stella would not allow. She folded back the waving, golden-tinted tresses from her pure brow, gathered them into a classic knot, and encircled her head with a white fillet. A stray lock here and there escaped its bonds, and was permitted to curl down her finely curved throat. The gas was by this time lighted. Stella was just receiving her dress from the hands of Mattie. Mrs. Bunce snatched it away. Wait, wait a bit, she said. Where's your paint and powder? But you're white enough without powdering. Where's your rouge? I have none. There is nothing in the poet's description of Virginia to make one suppose that she was particularly ruddy. Besides, excitement has given me too much color already. Does very well now, but it can't be depended upon like rouge. It won't last when you're frightened out of your wits. That's the mischief. Better let me borrow some rouge from the ladies. No, I would rather not. I don't see the necessity. Mrs. Bunce persisted. Stella refused. Oh, of course, you can just do as you please, said the officious dresser in a rather irate tone. I always do, replied Stella quietly. Stella's Roman toilette was completed. Even the critical Mrs. Bunce was forced to confess herself satisfied with the young debutante's appearance. It was so chastely classic, so befitting to the patrician maiden, so indicative of vestal purity. It wanted more than a half an hour of the rising of the curtain. The small stove had been gradually sending out thin wreaths of smoke. The atmosphere was becoming unendurable as Stella's smarting eyes and irritated lungs began to testify. I shall have neither sight nor voice if I am shut up in here any longer, thought she, and this chattering woman will drive my part quite out of my head. 
Then she remembered the kind offer of Mrs. Fairfax, and requested Mrs. Bunce to see if she were dressed. In the Roman matron who returned with the messenger, Stella hardly recognized her friend. The makeup of the practiced actress was so elaborate, so striking, so full of character. Mrs. Fairfax shook hands and held the novice at arm's length with a look of unmistakable pleasure, then retouched Stella's dress, disposed a fold here and there with a more statuesque grace, and said affectionately, I have seen at last my beau ideal of Virginia. I hope you feel quite collected. Tolerably, but this room is so close. The smoke chokes me. Might we not go down? Certainly. Come and I will show you the green room and teach you your way behind the scenes. That will help wear off the newness. Maddie followed, carefully, protecting from contact with the ground, Virginia's spotless vestiture. To Stella's great relief, Mrs. Bunce remained behind. This is the green room, said Mrs. Fairfax. Stella looked in curiously. It was a long, narrow apartment. At one end, sofas, throne chairs, and other stately seats for stage use stood crowded together. On either side of the wall, a cushioned bench was secured, the only article of stationary furniture except a full-length mirror. On this bench lay an actor in Roman apparel. Stella's uninitiated eye failed to detect that he was indebted to art for his white locks and venerable aspect. He appeared to be studying, but every now and then gave vent to an uneasy groan. That is Dentatus, Mr. Martin. Don't you recognize him? inquired Mrs. Fairfax. He is a martyr to inflammatory rheumatism and can hardly stand. He has suffered for years and finds no relief. Stella called to mind the gentleman on crutches whom she had seen at rehearsal. But how can he act? she asked. This is one of the stage mysteries, which it requires some wisdom to solve. You will see him, when he is called, hobble with his crutches to the wing, groaning at every step, and really suffering. There is no doubt about that. But the instant his cue is spoken, his crutches will very likely be flung at Fisk's head, and lo, Dentatus walks on stage, erect and firm as though he has never known an ache. He is a great favorite with the audience, and generally manages to keep them convulsed with laughter, though he never ceases complaining and groaning himself when he is out of their presence. Two other Romans were walking up and down the green room, repeating their parts in a low tone. At the farther end, where sofas and chairs were huddled together, sat a group of girls in Roman costume. Stella recognized Perdita among them. She was knitting lace with a rapidity positively wonderful. Mrs. Fairfax next conducted Stella to the prompter's nook on the right of the stage. There Mr. Finch sat, arranging his prompt book, and Fisk was going through a series of ludicrous antics at his side. The latter nodded to Stella and inquired patronizingly, How do you do? How do you feel now? Mrs. Fairfax checked him by a light box on the ear, and led Stella to the stage. It was covered with a green baize. The scene was set for a street in Rome. Come take your first look at the audience, said her Cicerone, pointing out a small aperture that had been surreptitiously made in the green curtain. 
They looked through and saw the boxes, pit, and gallery rapidly filling. At this moment, Floyd glided up to Stella, rubbing his boning hands. Such a house, such a house, he exclaimed, then darted away again. Stella's heart began to leap as though it would bound into her throat as she caught sight of the thronged audience. You won't mind them when you are once engrossed in your part, said Mrs. Fairfax, noting her sudden trepidation. Never think of an audience if you can help it. They walked up and down behind the scenes. Stella remarked the broken windows, the open doors, through which rushed strong currents of cold air, the dilapidated condition of the walls, and wondered at the comfortlessness of the place. It's the same in all theaters, my dear. I never knew a manager yet who thought it necessary to render the members of his company comfortable behind the scenes. Those windows have been broken all winter. Nobody ever dreams of having them mended. A good many of us have nearly perished in our light clothing, but I dare say we get accustomed to it, and on stage, in the excitement of acting, one is not conscious of heat or cold. The doorkeeper came up to him. There is a gentleman asking to see you, miss. He says you desired him to call. It's against the rules to admit strangers, and I had to take his name to Mr. Belton to get consent. Mr. Belton said he didn't mind you seeing anyone tonight, as you were a novice, but he wants you to learn the rules the sooner the better. It's Mr. Oakland. I begged him to come for one moment. How kind he is! Mr. Oakland was standing at the stage door, somewhat discomposed by the doorkeeper's rebuff fastidious and sensitive as he was that he was subjected himself to these annoyances was an eloquent proof of his attachment to the fatherless girl how good you are the sight of you revives me and gives me courage fair virginia yes you are virginia in looks be nothing but virginia to-night i must say adieu for i could not stay here and he looked around with an expression of slight disgust amongst these dramatic savages be natural do not aim at too much don't try to act but to feel don't declaim but talk remember the good rule colloquial but not prosaic forcible but not declamatory good-bye and heaven help you just then fisk darted by her twisting his body into ludicrous contortions as he ran up and down the stairs crying at the top of his piping voice first music kick kick first music kick kick along the gallery past all the dressing rooms he sped repeating first music kick down the staircase beneath the stage making the circuit of the gentlemen's dressing rooms he pursued his rapid flight still shouting first music kick what is that strange boy about asked stella of mrs fairfax he's making the first music call it is given a quarter of an hour before the curtain rises the musicians could now be heard tuning their instruments Stella continued promenading up and down with Miss Fairfax. After the lapse of five minutes, Fisk was seen rolling himself from side to side in sailor-like fashion as he climbed the stairs again, screaming, Second music, kick, kick, second music, kick, kick. 
he made the same tour and then rolled back to the prompter's seat. Now it wants 10 minutes of the time, said Mrs. Fairfax. Stella was seized with an uncontrollable fit of gasping and trembling. Her head grew giddy. The same sickening faintness which she had experienced at home now nearly overpowered her. Mattie ran for a glass of water. The members of the company, who were on their way to the green room, stopped to stare at the novice, to nudge each other, and jest at the alarm which most of them had suffered themselves. A last music, a last music, screeched Fix with a new variation of his fantasticalities. The orchestra was playing vociferously. Now, my dear, you had better forget everything else and think over your part. It wants but five minutes of the rising of the curtain. Oh, don't leave me, don't leave me. What would I do without you, supplicated Stella, for she saw her friend was about to mount the stair. I will return directly. You don't appear until the second scene. I go on a moment before you and from the same entrance. I shall be by your side. Now walk quietly about with Maddie and try to think only of the play. I shall fail, I shall fail, murmured Stella in an agony of fear. I shall never be able to articulate a word. Oh, if Mr. Oakland were here, or my brother, or anyone who loved me. She was wringing her hands in absolute despair when Perdita passed by her and went up to a man in the garb of a Roman citizen who was extended on the ground in one corner. He appeared to be asleep. His head rested on a pile of shields, breastplates, and other warlike accoutrements. Perdita laid a hand gently on his shoulder. Father, father dear, the last music is called. You'll be wanted out in a moment. Get out, get out, don't disturb me, get out. Get out, I say, was the rough reply, accompanied by a motion that somewhat resembled a kick. Father, you must wake up. The curtain is going to rise. You're on in the first scene. Do wake. What is it? What is it? Asked the man with his vacant stare. Bertie, it's you, is it? Always bothering me. No quiet to be found anywhere. No rest. I was forced to wake you, father, for you are called to the stage. She smoothed his disordered hair and arranged the tumbled folds of his toga. He rose unwillingly, shaking himself after the fashion of a huge mastiff. His form was tall and finely proportioned. His countenance must once have been handsome, but the defacing fingers of passion and sensuality had plowed furrows that destroyed its comeliness. He was not precisely intoxicated, but in the semi-stupid state which habitual intemperance renders second-natured. Stella forgot herself in her approaching trial as she watched the noble girl patiently waiting upon and soothing her brutal father. Everybody call for the first act of Virginia's, bellowed Fisk, gambling up to the green room door. Servius, Nisus, Virginia's, Titus, and all the Roman citizens. Oh, where is Mrs. Fairfax, cried Stella, as she seized Maddie's arm to support herself. Why don't she come? Do try and find her room. Beg her to come, Maddie. No, no, don't leave me here alone. Oh, if only she would come. I go on at that entrance over there. I must get there quickly. 
She was walking across the stage with Maddie's arm encircling her waist when the orchestra ceased. Clear the stage, ladies and gentlemen, called out Mr. Fitch. The prompter's tinkly bell was sounded. Stella's white dress and sandaled feet were visible for a second as the curtain slowly rose. The first scene commenced. Where Stella stood, she commanded a full view of the stage. But she saw nothing, heard nothing, not even the stately Virginius, not the shout of applause with which his interest was greeted. Courage, courage, said the kind boy at her side. It was Mrs. Fairfax. Oh, madam, I feel as if I were under water, stifling, drowning. It's only stage fright, my dear. It will pass off by and by. All actors suffer more or less from its paralyzing influence. Even our veterans are not proof against the occasional attacks of the monster. Try and collect yourself and think of what you have to do. Virginius! Servia! Virginia! cried Fisk in a more subdued tone, for now that the curtain had risen, his former key would have been heard by the audience. Fisk looked saucily in Stella's face, his head on one side, and a sagacious expression upon his countenance, which seemed to ask, how do you like it? Pleasant feeling, isn't it? And then he repeated almost in her ear, Virginia, oh, go away, you young pest, said Mrs. Fairfax, giving him a shove. A shrill whistle sounded. It penetrated Stella's very brain. The scene changed to an apartment in the house of Virginia's. There's Virginia's broidery, said Fisk giving Mrs. Fairfax a frame with worsted work of by no means classic appearance. There's your Virginia painting, he added, handing Stella a colored engraving. That's a picture of Achilles, which looks so wonderful like your beloved Acilius. Ain't it fine? At the sound of a changing scene, all the company poured from the green room and gathered around the wings to witness Stella's debut. Actors invariably entertain a sovereign contempt for novices. The stage tremors of youthful aspirants are a fruitful source of mirth. They delight in confusing and tormenting a debutante. Virginius enters with Servia. She points out the telltale letters L and I intertwined with a V in Virginia's embroidery. After a brief dialogue, Servia is dispatched for the maiden. Mrs. Fairfax returned to the place where she had left the panic-stricken Stella and found her lying in Mattie's arms, breathless with the intensity of her emotion, her face and lips colorless, her eyes half-closed. The actress grabbed her by the shoulder and pretended roughness shook her, saying, Rouse yourself, child, rouse yourself. You've only a second now. You're not going to make a failure. Think of what a disgrace it would be. Think of the one whom you wish to please most who is the dearest to you, and rouse yourself. Virginia's soliloquy is just over. Soft she comes. That is your cue. Go on bravely. She clasped Stella's icy hand and with gentle force pressed her forward. Stella was scarcely conscious of what she was doing as she tottered on the stage and approaching Virginia's, saying in a tremulous tone, Well, father, what's your will? Those footlights set forth a dazzling glare, but Stella was in total darkness. The air grew so thick she could not breathe. 
Her soul of lead staked her to the ground, and she could not move. There was a sound of noisy hands, a prolonged acclamation, but Stella paid no attention to these as she stood spellbound before Virginius. He attempted to speak, but the applause drowned his voice. As it was bestowed upon another, he would gladly have hushed it down by proceeding with his part, a favorite trick of actors, but the audience was resolute in obtaining some recognition from the stupefied novice. Mr. Tennant now churlishly whispered, "'Curtsy, can't you? Curtsy!' muttering to himself, "'Defend me from novices!' Stella, thus prompted, turned mechanically to the audience and bended slightly, for her quivering limbs rendered the genuflection somewhat difficult of accomplishment. The darkness was partially dispelled, but still the misty atmosphere seemed full of floating atoms. Her Roman father was enveloped by them. The air was less stifling, but were they not flakes of ice when she inhaled at every breath? Silence was restored, and the dialogue proceeded. The graceful simplicity of Stella's attire, the changing beauty of her countenance, the refinement of her mien, her rich, well-cadenced voice, made an instantaneous impression on the audience. Virginius dispatches her for her last task. Mrs. Fairfax had thoughtfully taken the painting from Stella's hand and was now holding it in readiness. Stella drew one long breath of relief as she passed out of sight of the audience. Only three lines were spoken by Virginius before Virginia re-enters. Stella would have certainly forgotten herself, but for Mrs. Fairfax. Virginia returns with the painting. Dentatus enters a moment afterwards. There was no trace of the crippled rheumatic in his gait or his mien. Dentatus and Virginius retire together. It was passing strange, but Stella, now that she was left alone upon the stage, felt as though the freezing influences that begirt her had suddenly melted away. The spell was broken, her lost faculties restored, her form dilated, the truant blood rushed back to her cheeks, the luster to her dimmed eyes, her thoughts concentrated themselves on her part, and with involuntary self-surrender she became Virginia. Nothing could surpass the girlish naturalness, the earnest sweetness with which she uttered, How is it with my heart? I feel as one that has lost everything, and just before had nothing left to wish for. He will cast Asilius off. I never told it yet, but take of me, thou gentle heir, the secret, and ever breathe more balmy sweet. I love Asilius. He'll cast Asilius off, not if Asilius approves his honor. That he'll never do. He speaks and looks and moves a thing of honor or honor never yet spoke, looked, or moved, or was a thing of earth. The audience testified their approval. She had taken her first step on the steep flinty mount. That over, at every tread, she gained a securer fold. Asilius enters. Virginia has but a few lines to speak in this scene, but the maidenly modesty with which she confessed her love. My secret's yours. Keep it and honor it, Asilius. Her drooping head, the unconscious picturesqueness of her pose, drew down a second round of plaudits. When the act closed, 
Mrs. Fairfax embraced her warmly. You will be an actress. I thought it so, but now I know it. But what I have suffered and how much more I owe to your sympathy and encouragement, replied Stella. By the time that the call boy's summons for the second act was given, she had entirely regained her self-possession. Every time she appeared, she grew in favor with the audience. There is no field for a striking display of dramatic abilities in the simple character of Virginia as portrayed by Knowles, but Stella's unaffected, artless delineation left a deep impression. In the fourth act, as Virginius raises his knife to stab his daughter, Stella gave utterance to an irrepressible shriek, which imparted unusual reality to the scene. Virginius, the instant he had struck the blow, dropped the girl from his arms to the ground, and, with the upraised knife, rushed towards Claudius, exclaiming, Lo, Appius, with this innocent blood, I do devote thee to the infernal gods. Stella felt the trampling of the citizens' and soldiers' feet over her dress and on her loosened hair as they gathered round to form the closing tableau, but she lay motionless, inwardly sending up thanks to heaven that her trial was over. The curtain rapidly descended. Mr. Belton assisted her to rise. You've done well. You give promise, were his cherry words of commendation. There was, of course, a call for the debutante. The manager requested Mr. Tennant to be kind enough to lead on Miss Rosenvelt. The pompous tragedian complied somewhat sulkily. As Stella made her obeisance before the footlights, every chord of her heart vibrated with a strange, wild delight. It was the first sensation of unalloyed pleasure she had experienced that night. While she resumed her everyday attire, the tearful congratulations of Maddie drew from her eyes responding tokens of joy. Floyd came for the basket. That he noticed her streaming eyes was obvious. Oh, 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 he murmured pityingly. Then when she smiled, he shook his head, rubbed his, rubbed his hands gleefully, and repeated his favorite ejaculation. Such a house, such a house. Half an hour later, the debutante was sobbing in her mother's arm. Mother, I have succeeded. Forgive my waywardness. End of section four.